0: Gary Jubilant was hailed as the hero police officer that helped solve some of Australia's most baffling crimes. And some believed Mr Jubilant was also the best person to help find out what happened to William Tyrrell. Mr Jubilant was head of the investigation into William's disappearance for more than four years before being sensationally removed and charged with misconduct. Now the police officer of more than 30 years is a convicted criminal after being found guilty and sentenced for illegally recording conversations during the Tyrrell investigation. In this episode, we'll look at Magistrate Ross Hudson's scathing assessment of Mr Jubelin's behaviour during the Tyrrell case and who he was targeting. So what does this latest extraordinary development mean in the ongoing investigation into finding out what happened to William? Has the internal politics that ripped apart the strike force Also, derailed any chance that we may know what happened that morning in Kendall in September 2014. The New South Wales Police Force says the William Tyrrell investigation is ongoing, but almost six years on, it seems there are more questions than answers. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? And a side note, due to ongoing constrictions with COVID-19, we are recording this episode remotely and the audio may sound a little different. Leah, who is Gary Jubelin and what is the criminal case against him?
1: Mr Jubelin was the lead detective on the William Tyrrell case from the start of 2015 until he was removed in January 2019. He took over the case about five months after William disappeared, after the original detective, Hans Rupp, retired. In January last year, he was then removed from the case after allegations of misconduct surfaced. Those allegations related to illegally recording conversations with Paul Savage, who lived across the road from William's foster grandmother's house. And he was a key suspect in the case at the time. Several months later, he then left the force, retiring early and ending his 34-year career with the police force, and he was then charged by New South Wales Police with four counts of illegally recording conversations with Mr Savage, once on the phone and three others in person at his house in Kendall in 2017 and 2018. Now, his criminal hearing was held in February, which went for much longer than was planned. It was set down for one week, but then went for two, four weeks. We've covered that in previous episodes. And Mr Jubilant's defence was that he recorded the conversations to protect his lawful interests, which was a defence under the Act, because he feared Mr Savage would make false complaints against him about how he was treated, or even that Savage could harm himself, and that Jubilant's behaviour would then be called into question. But the hearing also exposed the internal politics and police infighting on the force, as well as laid bare a lot of the strategies and theories Mr Jubelin was working on when he was investigating William's disappearance. To hear in detail exactly what happened during that hearing, you can listen to our previous episode called Was It an Accident?
0: Leah, the COVID-19 crisis that's currently gripping Australia and, and right around the world has also had a huge impact not only on the coronial inquest into William's disappearance, but we saw it impacted the amount of supporters that turned up to hear what was going to happen to Gary.
1: Due to those social distancing rules, the only people who were actually allowed in the courtroom for both his verdict and sentencing hearings were journalists, court staff, legal representatives, and Mr Jubelin himself. His family actually came along to support him, but weren't even allowed inside the building and had to wait outside for the decisions.
0: Magistrate Ross Hudson gave a very thorough and lengthy explanation for the reasons for his verdict. He actually spoke for about three hours before delivering the decision. Exactly what did he say? It was pretty scathing about Mr Jubelin.
1: Magistrate Hudson began by outlining the charges against him, as we mentioned, the four counts of illegally recording, which included one phone call made from Jubilant's phone while he was at police headquarters in Parramatta, and that was recorded by a junior officer named Greg Gallio at Jubilant's direction. And the other three were conversations in person at Mr Savage's house, two in May 2018 and one in December 2018. The magistrate told the court he accepted that there was certainly tension within the strike force and what he described as differing views on who should or shouldn't be a target. He spoke about Detective Sergeant Laura Beecroft's testimony, who worked closely with Jubelin on the strike force, and he found her to be a truthful witness during his criminal hearing, though he noted she was in a difficult position and clearly looked up to Jubelin. He told the court she confirmed effectively that her and other officers were aware the recordings had been made by Jubelin, which formed part of Mr Jubelin's defence, but told the court, quote, just because someone else knows you're doing something you shouldn't be doing doesn't make it right.
0: Can you just clarify, Leah, exactly why Mr Jubelin says that he made these recordings?
1: His defence was that at the time he believed he had a lawful reason to do so to protect his lawful interests, being that he was concerned future complaints would be made about him and that these recordings would prove exactly how he treated Savage in that moment and he believed that gave him legal right to make those recordings.
0: And Leah, tell us about Greg Gallio. Why were his comments and his evidence so critical?
1: So Gallio testified that the moment that he recorded that conversation at Jubilant's direction, he knew it was wrong and he told the court he hesitated when Jubilant asked him to do it. And that's when he claims Jubilant said to him, just do it. So he did. He also testified that Jubilant told him not to save the recording anywhere, but that he decided to save it onto his computer anyway. Jubilant denies both of these claims. The magistrate had previously told the court during the hearing that Mr Gallio's credibility was an issue, given that he'd since been given a promotion within the police force. However, in delivering his verdict, Magistrate Hudson told the court that essentially he believed him. He accepted his testimony that Jubilant told him to, quote, just do it when he protested recording the conversation and that he told him not to save it anywhere. The magistrate told the court he believed Mr. Gallio did this against the direction of Jubilum because, quote, in his mind, he knows it's not right.
0: So why would it matter if Gallio
1: received a promotion? The magistrate told the court that that made his credibility somewhat of an issue because it was a benefit that he had recently received from the police force, the same police force that's obviously prosecuting Mr. Jubilum.
0: Some of the most significant comments made by Magistrate Hudson during this hearing were in regards to the testimony from Paul Savage. Now, the Magistrate told the court he disagreed with the defence case from Mr Jubelin, that Savage would have assumed he was being recorded because he was aware of the police surveillance on him.
1: The Magistrate told the court that Mr Savage did not consent to being recorded and maintained that throughout his testimony. He reiterated several times throughout the hearing that Jubelin's claims the conversations were time-sensitive and had to happen on those particular days were not believable, saying that on each occasion that he spoke with Savage and recorded those conversations, Jubelin dictated the day, the time and the nature of the conversations and that Mr Jubelin could have sent someone else to do it if he was concerned that his relationship with Savage had deteriorated to the point that he was concerned about him making false complaints against him. Magistrate Hudson then went on to comment on the pursuit of Savage as a suspect and the questioning of him, which was played in court, that lengthy police interview that um, we've heard before on the podcast. He questioned what evidence Jubilant had to suspect Mr Savage telling the court, quote, there's no DNA, there's no fingerprints, there's no one necessarily who says I saw him go into the backyard where William Tyrrell was, there's no leads, there's nothing. The magistrate criticised the lengthy five-hour interview Jubilant conducted with Savage in 2017, saying the repeated questioning could be, quote, seen as offensive and then told the court Jubilant's quote, inability to make concessions about the way he went about his pursuit of Savage would affect his reliability as a witness. He then went on to say that, quote, this was above and beyond legality, and that Jubilant quote, made a decision Mr Savage was his man and pursued him as a person of interest at all costs.
0: That's a pretty scathing assessment of Mr Jubelin.
1: There was definitely a sense of surprise in the court when he made those remarks, and it's certainly not something that I think Mr Jubilant expected him to say.
0: I'd say with a person like Mr Jubelin, who spent more than 30 years as a police officer, truth and abiding by the law is everything. As we mentioned earlier, it was a pretty scathing assessment from the magistrate.
1: It certainly was. Magistrate Hudson questioned Mr Jubilant's credibility, accusing him of, quote, playing a role and telling a story in the witness box, saying he, quote, made speeches which were bare justifications, not answering the questions, and that his evidence was designed and manufactured to fit into and establish a defence. After saying all that, the magistrate found him guilty of all four charges, saying, quote, the court cannot accept that the recording of the conversations was reasonably necessary to protect his lawful rights.
0: What was the reaction in court when he was found guilty on all four charges?
1: Look, when he actually delivered that verdict, there wasn't a lot of surprise in the room given all the comments he had just said in the hours before that. It was expected that that was going to be his decision after the scathing comments he made. But having said that, unlike in previous hearings, we weren't able to see the reaction of all his supporters because they weren't allowed in the courtroom.
0: It's interesting to note that the magistrate during one of his quotes said that Mr Jubalum made a decision, Mr Savage was his man and pursued him as a person of interest at all costs and also alleged or said in court that there was no evidence, no DNA. Considering his experience as a detective of more than 30 years, why would Mr Jubalum pursue someone like that if there was no DNA and it was at all costs?
1: A point that was made at some point in his sentencing hearing, which we will get to later, is that while there was no DNA evidence, no physical evidence in this case at all against anyone, when it came to Mr Savage, a Supreme Court did grant warrants to record his conversations and to bug his house. And to get those warrants, you do have to present some evidence to the court to support your suspicions. So the point was made in court that those warrants were granted. So there was obviously a Supreme Court judge, at least one, possibly more than one, who believed that that suspicion was justified.
0: I've read somewhere else during this case, Leah, that apparently police surveillance, we were aware that Mr Savage was being recorded with police surveillance, that often that equipment didn't work. Is that correct?
1: That's right and that was one of his defences in this case was that one of the reasons why he decided to record those conversations was because they didn't trust the recordings that were being made by the devices that the warrant had covered and that they had permission to install in his house. They regularly had technical issues with them and there was also a huge backlog of being able to listen to all that content and that was an issue that they were facing throughout the investigation.
0: So Mr Jubilant was found guilty on all four charges. What penalty was he facing?
1: He was found guilty on the Monday. His sentencing hearing was to be held on the Wednesday, so two days later, and the crimes that he was found guilty of carry a maximum penalty of five years jail and or an $11,000 fine.
0: Leah, Mr Jubilant was being represented by Margaret Canine, a very experienced and well-respected QC, They, I'm sure, would have been shocked that he was found guilty on all four charges, but they took an opportunity before he was sentenced to get a number of character references for Mr Jubelin. I guess some may say to try to convince the magistrate he deserved leniency. What was uh, Jubelin's defence team hoping to
1: achieve? So just because Mr Jubelin was found guilty, it doesn't actually mean that he's been convicted in the eyes of the law? A magistrate can find someone guilty of a crime but then decide not to record a conviction against them, which means the defendant then doesn't have a criminal record and that usually happens when the offence is deemed as minor and that there are factors which have convinced the magistrate they don't deserve to be punished for whatever reason. So that is what Jubilant's defence barrister, Margaret Cunningham, was pushing for in that hearing and part of that strategy was to show that he was of good character and that's where all those character references came in.
0: So who came to court to testify about Mr Jubilant's character?
1: He had a very impressive list of people who came to defend him. I've certainly never sat in a criminal case myself where there have been people of this calibre giving character references. That included a former Deputy Police Commissioner, the state's former top prosecutor and a state Member of Parliament. The first one to testify was New South Wales Greens Member of Parliament and former barrister David Shoebridge, He got to know Jubelin through his work on the Bowerville murder case, which we've discussed in previous episodes, the fight for justice for the murders of three Aboriginal children. Mr. Shoebridge clarified right at the start of his testimony that he's always been a huge advocate for the protection of civil liberties and told the court that he believes the protections covered by the Surveillance Devices Act, the one that Jubelin has been convicted of breaching, are important. But that it hasn't changed his opinion of Jubilant's character. He told the court Jubalin was quote, fundamentally a genuine and decent man and he actually spoke outside court after his testimony and this is what he had to say.
2: Uh, in all my dealings with Gary Jubalin I found him to be both fundamentally honest and decent. Uh, an extraordinarily committed police officer um, who was willing to really put his career on the line um, when, when, it, when, it, when it mattered most to support victims of crime. How would you describe what's happening to him now Basically, potential five years oh. in jail? It's an extraordinary turn of events. It's not my job to second-guess the justice system. Um, uh, I, what I'll say is this. Uh, Gary Jublin has spent his professional life committed to supporting victims of crime, uh, doing an extraordinary job as a police officer. I think it's important that the court understands that.
0: The next witness was former Deputy Police Commissioner for New South Wales, Nick Caldas, who's had an incredibly impressive and decorated career. Mr Caldas was previously the head of the Homicide Squad where he was Mr Jubilant's commander. What did he have to say?
1: Mr Kaldas told the court that in his experience as Jubilant's colleague and his superior officer, he was a very committed and tenacious investigator who always had the interests of murder victims and their families at heart. And he added that, quote, I also found him to be a very loyal colleague. He told the court, I have no doubt about his integrity and that's why I'm here today. He said there'd never been any issues that he was aware of between Jubelin and any former colleagues while he was in charge. And he added, quote, if there have been recent issues, I think there may have been some failures in leadership in not dealing with those issues. Prosecutor Phil Hogan then questioned Mr Caldas, which he did with all of the witnesses who testified to Jubelin's character. And given his background, he took the opportunity to ask him about some of the findings the magistrate had made about Jubilant's conduct in pursuing Paul Savage. Mr Hogan repeatedly asked him about what he called effective policing and whether what Jubilant had done in pursuing Savage at all costs, as the magistrate had said, despite the lack of evidence, was effective policing. Mr Kaldas told the court, quote, you have to be tenacious and if you're not tenacious, you'll never solve any crime. You have to go with your own assessment and your own feeling. He also pointed out that there were warrants in place which had been granted by a judge and to have those granted, you do have to present some evidence to support your suspicions. He told the court, quote, if you have some suspicions which has caused you to take out those warrants and the courts have not stopped you, I think you've got enough there to proceed to an interview. Referring to the interview Jubilant did with Savage, which was played in court and which was criticised by the magistrate.
0: Another very senior person to give a character reference for Mr Jubilant was former senior Crown Prosecutor Mark Tedeschi. He also showed up, as we mentioned earlier, for Mr Jubilant. He previously worked with him on cases that he prosecuted where Mr Jubilant was the detective on those cases. What did he say in court?
1: Mr Tedeschi told the court Jubilin was, quote, one of the best police officers that I've come across in terms of his application, his professionalism, his attitude and his integrity, and that he always found him to be a trustworthy person. He also said that he had tried to dissuade Jubalin from leaving the force last year because, quote, I thought it was such a terrible loss and I still think that his loss to the force is a loss to the state of New South Wales. Now, all of these witnesses, as I said, were questioned by Prosecutor Phil Hogan, and for each of them he asked if the magistrate's assessment that Jubilant manufactured his evidence and was telling a story had altered their opinions that he was an honest man, and all of them said that it had not changed their opinions of him.
0: It seems especially over recent months we've been focusing on a lot of internal politics within the police force and we have to always remember William and remember his much-loved family. William's foster mother also decided to testify at the hearing into Mr Jubelin's defence. She's previously spoken about him on our podcast and always has said that she was told Mr Jubilant was the best possible person to find out what happened to her foster son What did she say in court and how has this been for the foster family?
1: William's foster mother told the court that, quote, he got to know William, he got to know William's sister. He's never met William, but he knows him. And we just felt this is a man who wants to solve this. She told the court that she still trusts him implicitly. And when she was asked if she has any concern about the future of the investigation, she replied, yes, I do. And that's obviously an issue she's spoken previously about on this podcast. She and her husband then released a statement after her testimony saying, From the moment Gary Jubilant was appointed to lead Strike Force Rossanne, he lived and breathed the investigation with absolute commitment to finding out what has happened to William. From the outset, Gary and a dedicated few in Strike Force Rossanne were faced with enormous challenges, barriers and constant distractions that have consistently diverted resources away from the investigation to find a three-year-old little boy. And yet, even when faced with these extreme obstacles, Gary and those who shared his passion and commitment have lived and breathed this purpose with undying dedication and always to bring justice for William and all those who loved him. There is little doubt that this wouldn't be the first occasion when someone with this level of responsibility has gone above and beyond, crossing boundaries and creating new boundaries to achieve an outcome and justice for a three-year-old child and their loved ones. Irrespective of the decision handed down today by Magistrate Ross Hudson, the situation is that Gary and his dedicated team members have given everything within their power in their resolve to finding William even often at great personal expense and loss. Where's the justice for William? Where's the justice for William and his loved ones? Significantly, where is the justice for the people of New South Wales? In the absence of justice for William, every day this heinous crime remains unsolved. The perpetrator or perpetrators remain at large and capable of committing monstrous crimes against innocent children and their families.
0: we spoke before about William going missing and the impact, a heartbreaking loss for William's family and friends the day he went missing on that morning in September 2014. But to not know what has ever happened to that little boy must be unbearable. Did you get a chance to speak to the foster family?
1: I did get a chance to speak with her on several occasions throughout this criminal hearing. Um, And over the past few months, as we've been both at the inquest and at Gary's criminal hearings, and they are certainly frustrated, first of all, that this has detracted from the main purpose, which should be the most important thing, which is finding William. And they still do have a lot of fear for the future of the investigation without Mr Jubelin on it.
0: Leah, we've spoken about during this podcast the allegations very strongly from the Foster family that they believed internal politics was behind targeting Mr Jubelin and that that had jeopardised the whole investigation into finding William. There's been other allegations from other people that it was a witch hunt uh, for Mr Jubelin. The bottom line is, as we know now, he was found guilty on four charges and sentenced From the point of view of Mr Jubelin, he's an experienced police officer of more than 30 years. Do you think he regrets what he did? Why did he do that? That now, in hindsight, we realise derailed his entire career, but more importantly, there are allegations that it has derailed the ongoing investigation into William's disappearance.
1: I think it's safe to say that he does regret recording those conversations, although he still maintains that he thought he had a lawful right to do so when he did that. The fact that he did do it has caused a chain of events, which has led to him now no longer being on the case, no longer being a police officer. And it's put William's family through a lot of anguish having had to go through this process. So I think it's certainly safe to say that he regrets that now.
0: So, heading back now to the sentence, both Mr. Jubilant's defence barrister Margaret Canine and the prosecutor Phil Hogan had their chance to make submissions to the magistrate about what sentence Mr. Jubilant should get. What were their arguments?
1: Jubilant's defence team tried to convince the magistrate not to record a conviction against him, given his unblemished and lengthy public service career with the police force and the effect that the case already had on his reputation and that a criminal record would affect his ability to be able to continue working, particularly in the investigations or legal field. But the prosecution argued a conviction and punishment was needed to deter other police officers from committing similar crimes and that this was a serious breach of privacy and trust and needed to be treated as such.
0: The magistrate made it pretty clear in sentencing that he didn't think these crimes warranted jail time, but he did not agree that Mr Jubelin should not be punished at all.
1: The magistrate told the court, quote, it is illegally recording. It strikes across the heart of the extent, nature and purpose of the Surveillance Devices Act and that Jubelin's illegal actions could have jeopardised the William Tyrrell case telling the court that it was important on such a case that, quote, if there is evidence available that it is obtained legally and that it is admissible in court. He accepted that Jubelin has no criminal history or previous allegations of police misconduct and that he was of good character. But he agreed the sentence must send a message to the New South Wales Police Force and the general public. He convicted him and fined him $2,500 for each of the four offences meaning that Mr Jubelin now has a criminal record and needs to pay the court a total of $10,000 in fines.
0: How upsetting is that for Mr Jubelin to now be a convicted criminal for someone that was on the other side of the law for more than 30 years he now has a conviction against his name. So if anyone looks at him or googles him or whatever that comes up he has a conviction.
1: It's a huge blow to the reputation of someone who has a 34-year Career with New South Wales Police as a highly respected homicide detective, to go from that to now having a criminal record is obviously a huge blow to him. There's no doubt that he's extremely disappointed with the result, and he spoke outside court after the hearing and he confirmed that his legal team has already lodged an appeal. Here's what he said.
2: I'd just like to uh, say that uh, I want to thank the people that uh, came along and gave uh, character for me today. It was an impressive uh, lineup of people and uh, it was truly humbling to hear them say the words that they, uh, words that they said. In regards to uh, what took place today, I'm obviously uh, obviously disappointed. I'd like to thank the uh, support I've had from my family, friends and most importantly the uh, victims of crime that have, uh, the support has been overwhelming for me. I'm not going to comment in detail about the court matter because uh, we've just lodged an appeal. Uh, this is the appeal, we've lodged the appeal, and I'll, I'll see how that plays out. As a former police officer, I respect the courts. I've said I've put people before the courts. The system might be perfect, but it's the best system we've got. I'd also like to say that I've got no animosity towards the New South Wales Police. I know a lot of hard, working police officers within the uh, within the police force. So uh, that's all, thank you.
1: He also spoke about something outside court that was mentioned in court when his barrister, Margaret Cuneen, was making submissions about the effect that this has already had on his reputation. She mentioned that he was actually accosted by a man on his way to court that day, and this is what he said about it.
2: Oh, sorry, one other thing, and the question was, what abuse did I receive in the street today? It's not unusual when a police officer like myself gets hung out to dry. Um, walking to court, there was a character, and that's how i describe him, that uh, decided to uh, tell me what he was going to do to me when they got me in jail. Um, that's not an unusual occurrence. That's the price I have paid for the circumstances I find myself in. Thanks very much.
0: What does he mean by that? Why was he accosted? What happened?
1: It wasn't witnessed by any of the media, but from what was said in court and what was said outside court, a man who recognised him on the street approached him and made some disparaging comments about what was going to happen to him when he went to jail, which is obviously not the case, but that was what that man was insinuating.
0: And is that because he feels he's let down the William Tyrrell investigation, or that's because he just doesn't like him because he's a police officer?
1: It's hard to say why, but it was one of the arguments that they used in court to say that this has had a negative effect on his reputation already and that's why he doesn't deserve further punishment.
0: Leah, you had the opportunity, as we mentioned earlier, to sit down with Mr Jubelin and speak with him about the criminal case and also ask some questions, I guess, many of us want to know about who he thinks may be responsible for William's disappearance and what the future holds for the ongoing investigation.
1: Yeah, up until now, Mr Jubelin hasn't been able to speak extensively about his criminal charges and the William Tyrrell case. But now that his hearing is over and he's been convicted and sentenced, I was able to sit down with him and ask him some questions, including whether he now has any regrets about his conduct while investigating Paul Savage as a suspect, and also more generally what he hopes for the future of the William Tyrrell case without his involvement.
2: Look, even talking from the outside of the police. I don't think there's a police officer in um, New South Wales Police that wouldn't want to find answers for what happened to William Tyrrell. So I don't think there's um, yeah, there's a reason why they wouldn't pursue it. I just hope they put the effort in, because it is a difficult one, and they're going to have to put an effort in. And that effort might be above and beyond. And I, uh, dispel the misconception that above and beyond is breaking rules. No, it's just putting that extra effort, go that extra yard to find out what's happened, and I
1: hope that's what they do. That interview will be played in full in a bonus episode of the podcast.
0: Leah, you've been covering this case since September 2014 when William first went missing. I've been lucky enough to be involved with you with this podcast for just over 12 months now. There are so many twists and turns in this case, almost, gosh, six years since he disappeared. There seems to be, as we started this episode, saying there are more questions than answers. For William's family, as we mentioned, the fact that he went missing, he disappeared into the thin air, that no one can find out what happened to William so many years on. How are we set to learn any more? Do you think we'll ever find out what happened?
1: I have to hope that we will because I don't think any of us can accept that we'll never know. I mean, this is a three-year-old boy who vanished off the face of the earth and beyond that there is still someone out there who took a three-year-old boy and put him somewhere that no one knows where he is, including his family, and they've put his family through five and a half years of unimaginable grief and trauma. We can't just accept that we're never going to know. And I think that is exactly how his family feels, both birth family and foster family. They're never going to accept that they will just never know what happened. And it's been five and a half years of, as you said, massive twists and turns. And even since we started recording this podcast, there's been some twists and turns that no one saw coming. And still we don't have seemingly any concrete answers as to what happened to William. The coronial inquest is still ongoing because of COVID-19. It's been suspended indefinitely. We don't know when that's going to pick back up again. There will then have to be a period where the coroner will consider her findings What those findings are, no one knows. And the longer we go on, the less likely it feels like someone is about to be charged for this. In fact, the only person who's been charged with a crime throughout this whole ordeal is the lead investigator. So it's been one of those cases where you don't know what's coming next and we don't know what's going to happen after the coronial inquest, whether the coroner will recommend criminal charges or whether she will send the case to unsolved homicide. I know that is not what the foster parents want. They want this case to keep going. They want the investigation to remain active, but at this stage, it's very difficult to know what the future holds. So what do
0: you think happened to William? We've heard allegations, especially during the coronial inquest that there was one person that was convinced they saw William in the back of a car speeding down a local road. There are allegations that it was a terrible accident. There are also allegations that there was a very well-known pedophile ring operating in the area at the time and it was certainly human intervention. There are so many different theories about what may have happened to William. What do you think happened to him?
1: This is a question that I get asked so often and it is such a hard one to answer, not only because as a journalist we're not supposed to draw those conclusions, we're supposed to leave that to the experts to do, to other people to do, but also because I genuinely don't know. I wish that I knew, I wish I had a theory that I was convinced is exactly what happened, but... The baffling thing about this case is that no one is sure what happened to him. In fact, no one even has a very strong theory, from what I understand, as to what happened to him. We know that someone took him. We know that someone is responsible for this. We know he didn't just wander off into the bush. But as I stand on that street, as I have done many, many times before, it still baffles me, as I said at the start of this podcast, how this happened, in broad daylight with absolutely no witnesses no one heard anything no one saw anything he just vanished and it continues to baffle me to this day i obviously have theories that i think could have happened but as far as saying this is what happened to william i can't say it certainly baffles you
0: it baffles me it baffles every single person that has any idea or any knowledge of this case but you say it so well we cannot forget William. That's what this story is about.
2: Where's William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. If you want more information about this case or this podcast series, please visit 10 Daily and go to the dedicated Where's William Tyrrell section. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.